Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Fresh from the Hill. As always, it is uh, me, it is I, Armand Sadler, class of 2017, communication major in Cows. I'm here with my co-host. How you feeling, man? What's up, y'all? It's Nick Early, Paul. What I was gonna say, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm because I got another bro on the couch. Right. Introduce myself like Alpha. I did cross and from um, Almighty Alpha Chapter, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated in Fall 14. Found it on Cornell's campus, but I graduated from Cornell University <laughs> in 2017 ILR. Uh, yeah, and it's funny that Nick got into the whole Alpha Phi Alpha introduction because we have with us uh, one of our brothers, uh, one of our younger brothers within uh, the, the, the Alpha Chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, but his resume is world-renowned. He has played music all over the world. Literally. Graduated from Cornell, obviously. Uh, architecture, art, and planning uh, guy and attended graduate school at Columbia University. Um, Grammy accredited, if, 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 I, if, I am, um, if I'm quoting that correctly. Nominated, right? Nominated. I would say nominated. Nominated, yes. Grammy nominated. Um, and we will get into all of that and more. So we want to introduce to you all, Colin Hancock. Colin, how are you feeling, man? Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is this is great. It's just so great to see you guys, especially like seeing the two of you like on a couch. It's like it's like the memories are just like all coming. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> you know where we live, man. Come see us yeah, sometime. Man. Yeah, for real. What's for real. that like in your that. background? Oh, uh, this is my like studio area. Okay. There's like my piano, like the recording machines and stuff. You know. So tell me about that recording machine specifically and how do you use it these days? Yeah. So this is my uh, acoustic studio here in Brooklyn. Um, it is the only uh, acoustic studio that cuts like flat records, you know, like 78 RPM flat records in the entire world is this one right here. We did say we're over now. Um, yeah. we're over now. <laughs> I, I've wanted to have a studio like this since I was like probably 10 like you know kid and i just never had the space or the equipment and right. then like maybe three weeks after no like two weeks after graduating i was in um st louis actually working on the project that got me the nomination mm -hmm. and i went to go visit like a, a you know somebody who collects records and machines and stuff up there and i saw they had like a what's called a lathe um in their in their house and i bought it from them but the lathe was meant to, to, to record with a microphone, you know, electrically. So mm -hmm. I had to kind of take parts and build an acoustic cutting head. So acoustic means there's no microphones. It's all sound goes into, this is called a horn. And then at the end, there's a needle and it just cuts the sound mechanically. Wow. You know, the sound wave just vibrates the needle and it cuts it, cuts the groove, which is how they made records all the way from the 18, probably 90s to around 1925. So Obviously, microphones sound a whole lot better than <laughs> records from 1895, hence the fact that nobody records acoustically anymore, hence the fact that this is the only studio like that. But the flip side is it sounds pretty cool when you do record that way. It, you know, it's very informative, I think, for a lot of people to hear themselves in that context. So Wow. So I'm, I'm imagining that as soon curators will be approaching you about your equipment, about your, your stuff, what's what's... What's uh, let's go back and just say, like, how did you even get into all this? You know, like, this is very yeah. and these are antiques. So, yeah, much. quite literally. How did you get into it? Yeah. So um, I got into the, the technology and the music at the same time, which like 
Um, you know, most people get in, get into, you know, one or the other, mm-hmm. but it was, it was sort of both for me. And, and I see them almost as like together, you know, in a way, cause like I was, I think eight years old and I heard, you know, this kind of music for the first time. And when I heard it, I, I noticed both the music itself was great, but also the, the sound of it was weird or different, you know? And I was like, why does it sound this way? It has like a certain kind of like tonality to it and, or lack of, of, of clarity, but also there, there's something distinctive about it, which, you know, I, I, I didn't realize this at the time directly, but I think I realized it indirectly that the technology like informed the way the music was played on the record, you know, like they had to play a certain way and play with certain instruments because of the technology. Um, and as I learned more about the music that became more apparent, um, and it's sort of, you know, I, I started to, to learn more about, you know, the, the instruments and the musicians and their stories and stuff, but I also got more and more interested in the, the technology, but there was, there's just so little that exists written, particularly about discs. Um, you know, there's before discs, there was something called cylinders, which is what Thomas Edison is famous for inventing. Um, wow. And there's actually more that survives about cylinders than uh, than there is about acoustic disc recording, even though we still have vi- like flat vinyl now, mm-hmm. because it was such a cutthroat industry that as soon as anything changed or anything, you know, became more advanced, they'd throw away anything wow. previous because it was just like, we got to move. We got to keep making money. We got to stay at the cutting edge. So wow. like, you know, most companies threw out their acoustic machines you know, the minute they, uh, you know, switch to the electric process and Columbia records, which is still in existence, which is insane to think about, like they've been around since I think, you know, the probably 1891 or 92. Um, they bought a brand new acoustic machine in like maybe January of 1925. And the microphone was, was uh, introduced in like May of 1925. So they were like, oops. <laughs> And so they actually opened like a budget, what's called a budget label, which is like cheaper records to be sold to, you know, people with, with less money who who couldn't afford the fancy records um, and recorded them with the acoustic technology that they had just bought all the way until 1930. Um, So people probably were buying them and thinking, why does this sound so terrible? But, you know, it's, it's a very interesting kind of, um, kind of story with, with this technology. And and the reason I, I mentioned that is that is when the last, commercial acoustic records like that were made with something like this were made was 1930 and then they stopped because they were like no one else does this anymore it doesn't make sense (laughs) so i imagine being someone who's into something as as niche and specific as this you end up sort of being it seems like there's weaved into the whole thing of being into it as some sort of responsibility to sort of you know understand the history understand the culture and and if, uh, if anything, you know, contribute to it as well. So like, yeah. tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you do on a day to day. You know, we know you're musicians. We know that. But tell the people, you know, you're a musician and what you do and how this incorporates into your life now. Yeah. So so with this stuff, um, opening the studio uh, has been like kind of a, a, a mission for me, because like I said, like when, when performers do this, you know, record this way it's, it's really informative and it's informative, like for a few reasons, like first you're hearing what the people you, a lot of the times, you know, listen to would have heard like the, the hearing yourself in the same way, 
Yeah. Um, and I think that's like good for context because one, it like, uh, it helps you hear things like, you know, like it hear the limitations mm -hmm. because you know what you sound like. And then you hear what, what it sounds like coming back out of this. And you're like, wait, this is missing. Or like, this is added. And then you can go back and listen to new recordings or not new recordings, old recordings yeah. and be like, oh, now I kind of know what is missing or what what is added because of the technology. So that's like, I think the most valuable thing is like it, it basically reteaches you how to listen to early recordings and the recordings of like your heroes, for lack of a better word. But then the other thing is like there's an art to it. You know, I mean, every time you do a session, you, you have to fit the limitations of the amount of time on the record the you know frequency range of what can and can't be recorded well with this um some artists who may sound amazing in person may sound not good on this and some artists who don't sound that good in person may sound great on this you know because of the technology it's it's almost like it's a phaser or a pedal or, or another okay. effect you know what i mean right um, because you know it's it's literally like it's, it's you have, you know, the type of metal the horn's made of, the size of the horn, the resonance of the inside of the horn, all of that affects the sound. So like on a day to day with this stuff, I'm like curating sessions or, you know, doing restoration work or just like basically trying to just keep this technology around for people to hear. Um, and then as a performer, I had mentioned like, this informs the style and just like kind of an interest in like that era of jazz in general. Like there are, you know, countless trumpet players in New York city yeah. who can play bop or who can play, you know, some, even, even in a style more associated with Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. but there's like three of us <laughs> who can play in a style before that, or even know about a style before that. And that's part of the reason I even moved here in the first place was because I realized like, my focus is on like the really early stuff and I, I I can do it decently. So like I figured why wouldn't I move somewhere where I would be in demand and also I would be able to contribute and maybe open up that avenue for other people who are interested and don't know right. about this kind of jazz, which brings it back to the studio because it's then like, well, what's a, what is a better way to do that than to like have somebody record the way they would have a hundred years ago? Then you're really in the thick of it. You know what I mean? Because all we have are the recordings anyway. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I would love to hear more about uh, when you're on campus, you know, things that you were involved in. Um, I, starting a band, obviously, and all the, all the recognition that you all would get. Like, I would just love to, to hear about that. Sure. So, yeah. So at Cornell, um, I was involved in a lot of uh, student organizations. Um, obviously, Alpha Phi Alpha was uh, one of my fondest experiences at Cornell um, for many reasons. And, you know, a lot of my heroes who were in this music um, were brothers of the fraternity, Fletcher Henderson, Duke Ellington, all these people. Um, and, uh, oh, speaking of which, Nick, I'll, I'll, I'll hit you up about this later. I know somebody whose teacher was UB Blake, who was uh, the in a team with Noble Sissel, who was in the fraternity. Oh, wow. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, we're yeah. going to <laughs> chop it up about that. Yeah, sure. yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, um, so, I, you know, the fraternity was like a huge part and also just connecting with other, um, you know, other African-American men on campus at a PWI um, was, was really valuable. Um, and then uh, I was involved in the jazz program quite a bit. Um, 
And I think my favorite aspect of that was obviously getting to start my group there, the original Cornell Syncopators, which was a dance orchestra um, that I started um, my, I technically started it my freshman year, but we had our first rehearsal my sophomore year. Um, and we made it from being just a combo on campus to being a, you know, a touring band that played at festivals and played, um, you know, sold out shows in New York and Philadelphia and all kinds of stuff. And it was just really wonderful to see that happen. And then now even the band still exists under, you know, leadership of, of new students, which is really cool. Um, so that was fun. Um, and that sort of led to my really, uh, sort of my expansion of, um, doing historical research and having more of a focus on, on early jazz, because I, I learned about band leading and about doing, you know, transcribing original music and finding original music. And I just really loved that. So I, I sort of took a nosedive into that kind of stuff. Um, and then also just, I, I studied urban planning and that's what I also went to for grad school. And that's sort of connected to what I'm doing, you know, as a, as a main gig right now, I'm working for a law firm and just, um, doing, you know, things related to land use. Um, so I was in, in the, you know, organization for urban and regional studies students and uh, the architecture, art and planning ambassadors and things like that. So. Amazing. Yeah. It was, it's like, as alphas, we were all so busy on campus. Like it's, it's always, it's so incredible to me how we would always find time to hang together, but also be involved in so much. And I would say you were one of the bros that like, we didn't see that often, but it was like, you always knew Colin was working. And well, one thing I, I want to hear your experience is putting together an album, recording an album and putting it out while being a student, while doing everything that you were doing. Like I just being, being post-grad and watching Nick put together his, his EPs, is, it takes a lot of time for him. So for you to be a yeah. full-time student and be doing all that and also put an album out, like what, what was that experience like? That's a good question. That was like, one of the most challenging but rewarding experiences I've ever had was like, as particularly the album that came out this year. So that should tell you how difficult it was that it was recorded in 2019 and came out in 2021. Um, so, it, it, you know, it all, it all goes back to like a conversation I had when I was studying abroad. Um, I met with like a, uh, a jazz historian in Italy where I studied abroad and we were talking about like, you know, bands in Europe that played in the you know traditional style and at one point we were talking about this band from Prague that did a song. Um, and I just asked him like, where did this song come from? Like, I've never heard of this song. And he said, Oh, it was actually by a college group. Um, and I found that really interesting. Like, you know, oh, wow. these bands, yeah. From, from college campuses. Um, and you know, it's, it, it had always been something that you'd read in sort of fine print um, about the history of this music was like, Oh, you know, this band started at, you know, at Northwestern or this band started at, at, you know, Wilberforce or something. And I found that really interesting. And I, and I did more research and I found out that the first college band to have a hit in the United States on records actually was from Cornell, mm. believe it or not. And so I was like, okay, this is like too many, too many things are happening right now for me not to do something about this. Um, so I, I, you know, at first thought we could, just make the focus of the semester college jazz. But then I thought, you know, this band is getting, is getting decent. We recorded a couple of albums, but it would be fun to record a serious album. What if we did it where it's all that music? And so I reached out to this guy, uh, Brian Wright, 
who uh, runs Rivermont Records, which is a Grammy nominated label out of Pittsburgh that focuses in this kind of jazz, both historic and present artists. Their nomination, their first nomination was a guy, for instance, who did all of Scott Joplin's compositions, you know, on piano. So I was like, okay, this is the perfect label to do this. And Pittsburgh's not far, yada, yada. So I hit him up and he loved the idea. Um, and so then it became a logistical thing of, okay, well, first off, we have to like pick out the music that we're going to do. And, you know, there's hundreds of college jazz bands that made records in the 20s. So I had to make a what's called a discography, which is a list of all of them. Mm -hmm. Listen to all of them. Pick out, you know, out of, you know, maybe a maybe 200 or something records, you know, what what are the 50 best ones? And then with the 50 best ones, meet with the band and be like, OK, out of these 50, which do you like? Um, and then we started to do that. But then we realized there's so much more specificity in this that needs to be addressed and the biggest thing that needed to be addressed was hbcus mm -hmm. because hbcus in the jazz age have never been looked at as one thing it's always been like you know this person studied at this school or like you know not like really nothing even more than that like oh well this person you know studied at fisk or or um Howard or whatever before they went on to be a band leader and it's like well you know even even when just talking about the college experience in the jazz age in general why do we ignore the black experience yeah. at colleges in the jazz age you know and, and the reason is because college at the time meant something very different for African Americans than for for you know not African Americans or women um for for African Americans and women in particular it was like these were new opportunities that were being opened up, yeah. having that level of education. Unfortunately, at most women colleges, there were not jazz bands like that was just not allowed. And on the East Coast, that was sort of the same thing for African-Americans. But in middle America, at particularly Wilberforce College, at Fisk in Nashville, um, at uh, Storer College, at Tuskegee, um, there was less of a social pressure to not play jazz because it was not the urban kind of mentality, like Booker T. Washington-esque mentality of, of it would be regressive to play this music. We need to look forward. Um, in, the, in the country, it was kind of like, you know, we're doing our own thing. We have our own community. Because like a lot of times these schools were in towns that were also predominantly black. Right. You know, there wasn't that external influence. So you get these sort of super bands that are like formed out of these like incredible communities. And like, I keep mentioning Wilberforce, but that's the school in particular that I can think of like at least three or four of the top bands in the black bands in the country that came out of these colleges, like students. Um, and like, the more I read about it and the more I read about how connected they were, the more I realized like, this is a narrative that like needs to be focused. So like before, if we were just going to include one or two uh, songs on the album that were by these bands, it, it quickly became evident that like, okay, at least a third need to be focused on this. And then a third need to be on the Ivy League schools, because that's like, that was a, a huge, like, uh, producer of, of uh, bands, like my trumpet teacher's teacher's teacher was in the Yale Collegians. His son, like, did a lot of stuff with the Princeton Triangle Jazz Band. Like, I don't know, it's just like a whole sort of community as well. And then like middle America and the West coast and the South are sort of all connected in that they're kind of like isolated schools. So that that's a whole thing too. Um, 
So with that, it all became a project that actually had a focus and actually had like facts and, and interesting things. Um, and we recorded it and did the initial research. Um, and then I graduated and we were gonna release it, but then a few things happened. One, um, one of the sub sort of projects or, or areas of focus in the album uh, ended up becoming something I had to put most of my time into. And it ended up being what I got the Grammy nomination on. So like that would not have happened were, were it not for that project, believe it or not. Um, so I had to put my time into that. The owner of the label, Brian, had a kid. And then after he had a kid, the pandemic happened. And then it was wow. just like time got lost. But we never we never um, lost sight of things. We just kind of everybody had other stuff happening and the world was a little insane. Um, but then luckily, uh, starting earlier this year, we kind of got back on track. And then finally, at the beginning of the summer, we like finished it. We finished production. We finished the notes and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and like the most gratifying thing, I think, of, of the whole project, other than, the, you know, seeing it all come together was connecting with like so many families of the people who made this music originally. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, like that was so cool. Like the granddaughter of the trombone player from the Cornell Collegians like knows me now. And I'm just like, that's so cool. Like <laughs> she, know, she knows we're playing her grandpa's music a hundred years later, mm -hmm. you know, at Cornell. Like that's, that's special. Yeah, me you know what I mean? Wow. So, yeah. so tell, tell the people one, you know, what you were, doing to earn your grammy nod uh, of course first because i feel like we didn't we didn't get to that i know you're humble but we don't, <laughs> we don't, we're, we're gonna big you up right now so sure. let the people know what you were doing <laughs> well okay so uh, i mentioned middle america is one of the sort of categories of that college project and i was asking myself what is the earliest college jazz band to have made any records even even going before we, we we call it jazz, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and in doing so, um, I learned about this guy actually through a piano player from upstate New York named Ed Clute, who plays on the album. Shout out. Um, and is a good friend. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. He was actually also on America's Got Talent, believe it or not. Uh, he was born blind and like is an amazing piano player. Like, it's just crazy. Um, but he he knew this guy. Um, named Gus Henschen, who was a piano player born in Missouri, I think in 1889, um, who studied with Scott Joplin mm -hmm. um, and went to Wash U, um, I think from 19, I want to say 08 to 1912, um, and started a band there that like basically was kind of like at the cutting edge of ragtime to the point where it starts to move in that jazz direction. And I had heard some of the records he had made, like one of them or two of them um, that had been reissued, but four of them had not been reissued. Um, and one of them was the song Maple Leaf Rag, which is by Scott Joplin. And that's important because Joplin never made any records. So this guy made a record of a song by Joplin and he studied with Joplin before Joplin died. So it's the only record of a Joplin song by someone like even affiliated with Joplin made during Joplin's life which oh, is like, wow. I'm like, why has this not ever been put out? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And so like that project, that was another moment where I was like, this is obvious. Like I obviously need to do this project. You know what I mean? Like it's going to take so much time, but it has to be done. Um, and so I spent a long time 
um, just trying to find the, the one known copy of that Maple Leaf Rag record, which ended up being in St. Louis, which is why I had to go to St. Louis, which is when I got this machine. Um, but uh, the other big parts of the project were just like curating it. And I worked with this guy that Ed introduced me to named Jim Drake, who was uh, Gus Henshin, the guy that the project's about, his assistant um, at Ithaca College, believe it or not, Gus uh, was a, was a uh, trustee. So, um, he uh, knew him personally, had all these notes, had some recorded interviews and really was just a, you know, pivotal part of the whole thing, um, helping me curate everything. And yeah, so like that, you know, the guy, Gus Henshin, after these records were made, ended up being the A&R person, which is like the person who picks out who's going to be recorded mm-hmm. um, for Brunswick, which is the number three label in the country at the time. And then uh, in 1927, switched over to radio and worked for NBC and CBS and like all these, you know, top radio companies um, conducting and curating stuff. So he was really like a musician's musician, if that makes sense. Like he he started out working, you know, the clubs and playing all over the place, but like it ended up becoming like somebody who would give people work and, you know, really like created this beautiful music later in life that was like, you know, for musicians to enjoy which is pretty cool so he had a a big impact on the industry and like doing a project based on him i think was like was long overdue honestly so yeah wow so amazing man look at you shout out to you man so what's next for you yeah so uh, a couple things like uh there have been a lot of talks about this (laughs) setup and doing some stuff um like i think I basically have an, an agreement with a label right now on like um, creating some like vinyl releases with this stuff, which could be really fun. Um, so I'm just working on, you know, curating who are the artists who are, are going to be recorded that way. Cause like, you know, it's not just going to be anyone. It's gotta be, it's gotta be really quality stuff if it's going to be like an actual release. Uh, and then a couple of like pet projects, the one that I'm like the most excited about, which is like the nerdiest thing ever, but who cares? Um, is a project, a project on jazz from Buffalo, New York. Because okay. Buffalo was the eighth biggest city in the country. And like nobody talks about, like during the jazz age. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody talks about the music that came from there. Or if they do, again, it's a footnote. And like, I'm not going to go into too much detail of stuff because there's you know got to be time for other questions and stuff. But um, some of the stuff I found out, like, in my research, I found the earliest recording of a Buffalo jazz band, which is the only known copy. Um, I've found out about a band that was led by a person who was the child of ex-slaves, one of whom became the White House cook for Ulysses S. Grant. And then they had this kid. And then the kid started a band that played in Buffalo and then went to the Philippines and Tokyo four times, you know, by ship by ship, an African-American band, you know, before plane travel across the ocean, like that's huge. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And they made one record in Buffalo and I think nine in Tokyo. So that's like the big cool story. Um, And then there's like a few other kind of neat sub stories, but um, it's just a, a, it's a lot of, it's a a lot of variety and a lot of fun music, which I think would make for a really cool project. and then, yeah, uh, other than that, just like playing around a lot in New York and leading bands, playing in bands. And um, I also 
plan on going to law school eventually. So there's that too. But. Yeah, you're all over. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Building an empire, <laughs> building an empire. So tell, so let's, I think we've kind of structured these naturally. I think they naturally structure reverse chronological. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just start from today and we kind of go back and uncover more and more. Uh, but tell us, you know, where are you from, man? How did you even get into music? You know, who are some of your early influences? And uh, just kind of give us that sort of background for the listeners. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Buda, Texas, which is a little town just outside of Austin um, in sort of the Texas Hill Country. Um, I got into this music for for a few reasons. One, my dad um, growing up heard a lot of it from his dad. Uh, his dad was was British. My dad's from England as well. Um, but his dad was in the in the Navy in the Second World War and like heard it from like American GIs. And then I also found out recently that he also like in the Navy, he joined the Navy before the war. So like he was in the Navy for a while as a kid. Um, and he went to Australia, I think in 1926 and to New York in 1929, like before the the stock market crash. Wow. So I'm just like, so he was there, he heard this stuff, you know? Um, and so he loved the music and he, my dad heard it growing up. Like my dad likes it too. It's not his like, you know, main area of focus, but he likes it. So he, um, you know, had it playing around the house. And then I remember when I was like eight, I found like three CDs, one by Louis Armstrong, uh, one by Bix Beiderbecke, who's my favorite, and one by Sidney Bechet, um, all of kind of 20s and traditional stuff. And I just was hooked immediately. Um, the first one I heard was, was Bix Beiderbecke, and it was acoustic recordings. So like, again, that's when I was like, whoa, I like both of the music and the tech. Um, so, yeah. So how, how many instruments do you play? How did you get started playing? Because I know you play a bunch. You're a multi-instrumentalist, <laughs> Grammy-nominated multi-instrumentalist, historian, all the above. <laughs> the, um, well, I started playing trumpet first. Uh, I It was actually, it's kind of funny, like, um, I, the reason I started playing the trumpet first was because because uh, Bix Beiderbecke it plays what's called a cornet, um, which is like a trumpet, but the difference is a cornet like progressively gets wider, so it has more mellow sound. It's more like a horn, if that makes sense. Whereas a trumpet stays the same diameter till the end and then gets wide, so it's brighter and you know it's better for a solo kind of like e- explosive instrument. Whereas a cornet is more melodic and and lyrical, but. I misread cornet as clarinet <laughs> as like an eight year old. I was like, <laughs> cl- he, I thought he played the trumpet, not the clarinet. So I was like, mom, I want to play the trumpet to my, or to my parents. And uh, my, my dad bought me a trumpet from a pawn shop uh, in Austin, uh, sort of as like a, okay, well, we'll start you off with this. And if you yeah. actually care, we'll, we'll work our way up. Yeah. Seriously. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I think my freshman year of, of high school, I finally was like, wait, it's obviously a different instrument. Like I need to get a cornet. So I switched to the cornet. Then. Um, but then like switching, like learning other instruments, honestly, was like, nobody else was playing 1920s jazz when I was a kid. So I was like, I, I don't really have like people to play this kind of music with, yeah. or if I do, it's not going to be what I want to do. Um, so I just started to learn things kind of out of necessity. Like, you know, I, I, if I want to know or hear the sound of this kind of clarinet or saxophone, I got to do it on my own. And then like, it sort of switched from that to, Oh, well I can get more gigs if I can play more instruments. So like I started to play more like, you know, gigs on clarinet and saxophone because less and less people. 
uh, would be able to do that in a 20 style, particularly clarinet and trombone. Um, and it was just fun. Like I'm, I'm a pretty musical person, I think. And like, it was just fun for me to like express myself on different instruments and like find out what personality I have on a banjo versus on like a tuba yeah. versus on like a drum set. Um, cause I really, it, sometimes it feels like I'm almost like a different person if I'm playing like a different instrument. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like I call, I call instruments playing different instruments, like the different dialects of the same language, right? It's the yeah, different absolutely. dialects of the musical language. hundred percent. hundred percent. Awesome. Um, thank you for your time. I'm sure you had much that you could attend to. So giving us your time is incredible. Oh my gosh. Um, no, it's great. Thank uh, you for having me. Well, actually, well, one last thing. What what advice would you give to someone who may may have grew up playing an instrument, would like to kind of network, would like to maybe secure gigs or just, you know, interact with people and kind of take things to the next level, especially within what, what you do musically? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, a couple things. Um, find shows of the music you like, mm-hmm. I think, is is critical. Because for years, I did not go to any because I just didn't even know where to start. Um, but it's pretty easy to do that. Like, just Google if, if you're if you want to be like a flamenco guitarist, like flamenco guitar shows, New York City, you know, or something like that. Or fa- even just look it up on Facebook. Like, I remember when I studied abroad in Rome, I had to do that because I was like, I, who am I going to play with here? Um, and so I like had to look up stuff and I found people and like it was good. It was great. I, that's how I got on the scene. Cause then you go to shows, you talk to people, maybe like between sets or like after the show, you know, be, don't be aggressive, but like be friendly and approach people just be like, Hey, I really like your playing something like that. Or like, I'd love to, you know, like, uh, learn, learn more about the scene or like about you, like you and your style. Um, I think that's like, you know, having humility and being like, you know, showing like, it's not necessarily like being vulnerable, but being a little bit vulnerable and being like, Hey, I'm like trying to get established here. Can you help me? You know, and stuff yeah. like that with people I think is like pretty important. Yeah. Um, and then also like um, learning some songs that are like what are often called standards so that if you are at a show and you have your instrument and someone is like, would you like to sit in or would you like to play with us? Um, or you don't have your instrument. Maybe you're a drummer, maybe you're a piano player and you're at a show um, and they play the kind of music you like. And, you know, you know, for instance, like if, if it was one of your shows, Nick, if like somebody knew, isn't she lovely or something like that, you know, then they could sit in, exactly. they could play that song. So like having that in your, in your, within your bag, as it were, because um, you never know, you know, you never know when you'll get asked to play or like, you know, oh, you play piano. Do you want to sit in with us? Like, that's a that's a big moment for a lot of people. So, awesome, awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, Colin. Listeners, if you want to learn about architecture, urban planning, the law, music, cooking, because this man can cook too. He do cook. That's <laughs> cook. If if you want to learn anything that this man has to offer, um, definitely interact with him. LinkedIn, Facebook, all, all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, this is another edition of Fresh from the Hill. Again, Colin, thank you so much for your time. Colin Hancock, everybody, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, For myself, for Nick, we will be back with y'all soon. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Fresh from the Hill. Music for Fresh from the Hill was created by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. For more information about Cornell Young Alumni programs and how to stay involved, please visit alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni or visit our Facebook page at Cornell Young Alumni Programs.